Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Well, we're studying the book of Acts this year, and we're, uh, we're closing in on the end of the second chapter of Acts. And at the, 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 chapter, the second chapter, we read this incredible story about this, this festival, the Jewish festival called the, the Day of Pentecost, or the Festival of Pentecost, and there was a Day of Pentecost in the middle of it, and while the Jewish people were going about their cultural and religious celebration, there was this Christian thing that was happening that really was a game changer, and it was when God poured out his Holy Spirit and made his Spirit available to absolutely all human beings who would come to him in faith. And that day, the day of Pentecost, is referred to as the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate that in the spring. It'll be in May, I believe, this year. And uh, that will be the 2020th, well, probably not, like the 2000, it'll be like the 2000th birthday of the church, somewhere in there, okay? Maybe 1990th birthday, something like that. Closing in on 2,000 years that the church has been being the church and doing the church. But Stop and consider with me, if you would, for just a moment, as big as that one event was, the amount of change that the first followers of Jesus had processed in the previous two months. They'd been just going about the countryside with Jesus, doing what they were doing, going from village to village, preaching about the coming of the kingdom. They had seen some miracles take place. Jesus' uh, ministry was punctuated fairly often by those things. And then uh, they were rolling into Jerusalem. And as they got into Jerusalem, this incredible thing happened. Jesus had all the time been telling them, I don't want to be a king. I'm not going to be the kind of king you think I am anyway. I'm not interested in a scepter. I'm not interested in a crown. I'm not interested in a robe. I'm not interested in a coronation parade. And yet, as he topped the hill coming into Jerusalem, the people were waiting for him. And they had, in fact, fact, um, made all the plans for an actual coronation parade. And so Jesus jumped on the back of the donkey and came rolling into town, roaring into town, and it looked like life was really going to change. And that week, his presence in Jerusalem was, uh, well, let's say just turning it upside down. Every day that he was in the temple, there was some kind of conflict with the powers that be. At one point, Jesus walked into the temple and he said, this thing isn't even a temple anymore. It's just a place where poor people get taken advantage of by religious people, and he trashed the place. If you read uh, one of the gospel accounts, it says that he left, fashioned a whip. He actually built the whip himself, knew what he was doing. This wasn't a fit of anger. Jesus said, I got a plan. He puts the thing together and goes back in there and uh, just turned the place upside down. He left there after that day, and when he came back into uh, Jerusalem the next time, it was for a meal with his disciples where he said, get ready, folks, everything's about to change. And then they just left the city and walked across the valley a little bit, and we're on a hillside, and there Jesus was arrested. Jesus was tortured to death. A few days later, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. The disciples are processing all of this change. And over the course of the next 40 days, Jesus just kept showing up wherever they were. And he would teach them about the kingdom of God and the spirit of God. And then he would do very ordinary things like eat meals with them and then disappear again. He did this over the course of 40 days. And when we get to the opening of the book of Acts, Jesus is with them on the hillside across from Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, he just starts lifting off into heaven 
of all the things that the disciples had seen over the course of the previous three years and the previous two months, there was nothing that, uh, that really prepared them very well for Jesus lifting into the sky, nor for angels to suddenly go, <clears throat> what are you looking at? Don't just stand there. Go be disciples. Then they prayed for 10 days straight. And then what they expected God to do, he did very, very differently in giving the Holy Spirit, not in the ways that, that he had in the Old Testament, but with this roaring sound as though heaven itself was blowing right into the room and these visible uh, representations of the presence of God, like that great pillar of fire that had hovered over the, the temple and over the tabernacle years before, it divided into little bitty pieces that went to every person and they were filled with God's Holy Spirit and they watched it happen for everybody in the room and then they stepped outside, Miraculous things happened, and it happened for 3,000 more people that day. Now, I don't know how much your life has changed since December, but you have not processed anywhere close to what those first followers of Jesus were trying to swallow and keep down. Can you imagine where they were, emotionally speaking? Spent. We'd like to think excited, right? But could you imagine having witnessed all of those things? You get to the end of the day of Pentecost, and there's 3,000 additional people going, um, so we're going to follow Jesus with you. Uh, how do we do it? See, because following Jesus before had been actually following Jesus. Jesus walked, you walked. Jesus stopped, you stopped. Jesus engaged in ministry, you engaged in ministry. Jesus got in a boat, you got in a boat. Once, Jesus walked on water, you walked on water. But whatever Jesus did, you just, you did it. You followed him. And now Jesus was in heaven, and all these people who claimed to be his followers had welcomed all these others in, and 3,000 of them said, okay, we believe what you believe. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit as you have. What do we do? And I don't think that the apostles, the, the, the leadership group among the, those first followers, I don't think they had planned this out. I think that they were caught rather off guard by how incredibly successful the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit had been. And as they stood there, having been a frightened small group before and now part of this giant mass of people, it seems that they conferred for a few moments and then, well, let's read. It's Acts chapter 2. I invite you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of his word. I will be reading from... Uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. Lord, we can read a, an ancient description of an even more ancient event. We could, I suppose, try to replicate what we see there, just copycat it. That world was so different. Those people had such a different understanding. I'm just not sure that it really behooves us to try that. But I do, Lord, ask that just as you guided that first church, those first followers of Jesus, to live for you in new ways in this world, I pray that you would help us to pattern our church after that first early, pure, and Holy Spirit-inspired faith. So grant us insight and understanding as we take a look at your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. 
all the believers, and all means all. Yeah, so we've got over 3,000 of them now. All of the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place, that's 3,000 plus in one place, and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while, praising God, and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we've been doing church a long time, about 2,000 years. Happy birthday, church. In fact, we've been doing some things in the church for so long that we've forgotten why we do them or why we got started doing them in the first place. But get this, prior to the day of Pentecost... Nobody had ever done church before. Yes, there were, they, they had religious experience from Judaism and, and, and from some other religions as well, but nobody had ever done church before. They had done synagogue, the local Jewish thing. They had done temple, the, the national, the big gathering thing of their religion, but none of them had ever done church. They'd only heard Jesus say the word a couple of times, so they didn't really even uh, have a good conception of what the church was, let alone see it as anything like a new religion or, or distinct from Judaism. As they gathered that day with 3,000 brand new followers looking at them and saying, what do we do as the followers of Jesus? The leadership team didn't have a model to follow. They didn't have a tradition to observe. They didn't have a formula that was given to them as the right way to now do life as a Christ follower. But the decisions that they made there in those first few days changed the course of history for literally billions of people since then. There are things that we have done already in this building today that we do simply because we have followed the example that they set on that first day that the church ever existed. You want to see what they did when God's Spirit came to live in people? Because that's what the whole book of Acts is about. The whole book of Acts is about what happens when God refuses to stay in heaven, refuses to just walk between and among people, but comes and lives in the hearts of every man and woman and teen and child who will welcome him in. You want to see what happens when God's Spirit comes to live in people? Let's break down this passage that we just read. I wish I could tell you that I have some brand new insight. The one I'm about to preach to you today is from the genius of Cliff Purcell. But we all know that doesn't exist, so I can't do that. The truth is, I'm leaning on the work of lots of pastors before me. I am standing on a firm foundation of the teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ and of his church that has followed suit ever since then. Guided by the Holy Spirit of God, the apostles sat all of those new believers and all those who had two or three years under their belt, they sat all of them down and said, here's how we're going to do life together so that we stay in step with Jesus and with one another. I'm going to say that again, so that we stay in step with Jesus and with one another and so that together we stay on track with the mission that he's given us. And they designed a way of life 
that uh, is shaped by the following five practices and principles. The first one is this, worship. Now, I'd like to find a good uh, 21st century word for worship, um, but I can't. Worship means worship. There isn't another word that means it. Worship is, uh, I'm a definitions guy, so let me help you with the definition for worship. Worship is loving God with everything you've got, like, like was taught in Deuteronomy 6 and all the way through the scriptures. It's loving God with absolutely everything you've got. When, when God first pulled his first group of people together and kind of shaped them and said, here's how you should do life together. Millennia before the, the Pentecost event, he said, here's, what, here's how you order your life. You love God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. You bring all of you, the inside part of you, and all of your strength, the outside part of you. You bring your physicality to this thing. Bring your heart, bring your mind, bring your mouth, bring your love, bring your affections, bring your friends, bring your family, bring everything you've got, and marshal it in the direction of loving God. Worship is loving God with everything you've got. And whatever is true, whatever else is true of that first group of, of Christ followers that met there on the day of Pentecost and were filled with his Holy Spirit, whatever else is true of the leadership team as they planned how to do life together with no Jesus physically present but with his Holy Spirit now living within them, they decided this, that all of the followers of Jesus Christ will devote themselves to worshiping him. Devote. It's a really strong word. It doesn't mean to try. It doesn't mean to occasionally attend. It means that way, way, way up on your priority list in this life, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you will humble yourself before him and worship when we read the word worship in both Old and New Testaments, we find time and time again that it is a word that is not an, uh, about an individual practice. It is always about a group event. The word worship used consistently in the Bible is used uh, consistently as a group public demonstration of love and affection for God. Worship isn't what happens when you're driving in your car, singing your favorite new Christian song. It's, that may be a devotional moment, but it isn't worship in the biblical sense. It isn't you singing the old rugged cross for the nine millionth time in the shower or while you're mowing the lawn. It's beautiful. Do that. It'll probably help nourish your soul, but it isn't worship. The Bible's word, worship, is what happens when all the people of God get together and put on a public demonstration of their love for him. When they decide to show one another and anyone else who chooses to show up how much they think God is worth. Worship is, the, is a contraction of, of, a, of an English word, worth-ship. Just shortened it a little bit. Here's what I think God's worth. He's worth a song or two or 12. He's worth my attention. He's, he's worth my excitement. He's, he's worth my reverence. He's worth other people thinking I'm a little too excited about Jesus. Sometimes. Worship. The people were devoted to it. The very first followers of Jesus said, we won't sometimes worship. It'll become one of the pillars of life that we organize our lives around. Second thing was this, 
community. Now, if you've uh, grown up in the church, you've been a part of the church for a long time, you will recognize the word fellowship, and that was what we read in, um, in the text. But I don't want to use the word fellowship because, unfortunately, I think we have um, kind of neutered the word, taken all the strength out of it by simply uh, turning it into any time that Christians, you know, just show up. Or any time that Christians eat. I mean, more, more often than not, it's, uh, if there's a meal, that's, quote, a fellowship. Now, now fellowship, um, in, in, the, in the biblical sense of that word, isn't, um, isn't just being social. Okay? Isn't just being social. Word. The, here's, if you ever want to win a trivia, Bible trivia contest, here's the New Testament word for fellowship. It's koinonia. And it means to participate with others because you are genuinely a part of them. To participate with others because you are genuinely a part of them, not uh, regardless of how much you feel apart from them. Let me say that again. It's participating with others because you are a part of them, no matter how much you feel you may be apart from them. Hmm. Uh, when we greet one another in our culture, uh, it's become common that we will shake hands. Laura, come join me for just a minute, please. I know, I didn't warn you, babe. Sorry. Um, I usually don't shake your hand. I can't remember the last time I shook your hand. We have much more enjoyable ways of greeting one another than, than shaking hands. But, I mean, did you ever just stop to think how strange that is? I mean, of all the things that we could do when we, when we encounter one another... Uh, the, the root of, of this practice, um, let, let me just back up and say that um, I shake lots of people's hands, including a lot of people that I meet for the very first time. You shake hands with people when you first meet them, don't you? Yeah? Yeah. Um, but but the, the root of this practice was never for strangers. You didn't shake the hands of strangers. Uh, you, you only did this with a person with whom you were already in very deep relationship or in the moment that you did it, you were sealing the relationship. You were entering into it. And so it usually first went like th this. It was this. Oh, and by the way, they would usually um, cut a little slit in their skin right here and yours right there. Yeah, it's the, it's, it's, it's really handshaking came from the whole blood brothers practice from covenant cultures. That when we would open a wound on, on either our palms or on our forearms, and we would press them together. We would, we would hold one another, and our bloods would flow together and mix. And now my life is in you, and your life is in me, and we're one. We are really together. And every time that we would greet one another after that, we would just reenact or remember. Press those wounds together and remember, I'm part of you and you're part of me. Fellowship in the church of Jesus Christ isn't about tipping your hat. It's not about a, a knowing nod. It's about participating in the lives of one another because I'm actually part of you now and you are part of me. Fellowship, uh, it, it doesn't mean that we come to an event called church or, or an event called a fellowship that takes place in a church building. Instead, the church 
is the people who assemble and participate with one another because we realize I'm part of you and you're part of me. We gather for relationship formation. We gather, we join together for participation in whatever the agreed upon activity is in a, a public setting kind of, kind of way because the followers of Jesus Christ are devoted to the fellowship. See, if we actually went so far as the blood brothers thing, you would understand this relationship's at a different level than me sending you the wave emoji in Facebook Messenger right? You, you would really believe that there's a different level of relationship. If I had a scar right here and Laura had a scar right there, we decided to make that a little more antiseptic. We exchanged rings, right? Yeah, that's, that's where the ring thing came from too. But the followers of Jesus Christ from the very beginning, the, the leaders of the church filled with God's Holy Spirit, seeking how, Lord, are we to live together now that Jesus is no longer walking among us, but his spirit lives within us. How are we supposed to live? The spirit led these first leaders to say the followers of Jesus Christ must devote themselves to the fellowship, not drop in on occasion, not show up when I don't have other things to do. Not when I've not not avoid the fellowship because I don't like some of the people there, but I need me some Jesus once in a while, so I show up for enough church till I get tired of you people and then leave you for a while. Being devoted to the fellowship means that whenever the body of Christ assembles, I'm there because I'm part of it. In the, as we read the scriptures, uh, Paul goes on to talk about the church as a body, like 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 a physical body. My elbow never gets a chance to withdraw from the fellowship. My elbow can decide I don't want to participate in the meal, but hand and belly want to get together. So, elbow has to help the food get here. Elbow doesn't get to take a vacation from the shower because hand needs to get some things removed from other things. And elbow has to help get in the soap and stuff. And I should really not chase this analogy any further. <laughs> Elbow may need a vacation from playing guitar, but it doesn't get one because it's part of the body. And when the body's together, Elbow has to do his thing. Elbow is devoted to the body because it's part of the body. It participates. That's what fellowship is. We get later in the, in the New Testament, we get to the place where this group of Christ followers has suffered uh, some, some persecution and some people were starting to withdraw from the fellowship. And the writer to the Hebrews says, uh-uh, do not quit meeting together as some are in the practice of doing. But all the more, as you see difficult days approaching, fellowship, come together, participate. The third thing that the apostles devoted themselves to uh, is development. If you've been around the church a lot, the word is discipleship. But when we say uh, $25 church words, we tend to just go, oh, I already know that. Forget about discipleship for a moment. And let me ask you about your development as a follower of Jesus Christ. If your relationship with your spouse is no more mature now than on the day of your wedding, you are either one, in trouble, two, divorced, or three, a horribly impoverished human being because there was a lot more for you to get 
from your relationship with your spouse if you would grow up a little bit and if you would grow the relationship a little bit. Salvation is a relationship, not a mere legal decree in the courts of heaven. When Jesus forgave you, he didn't just stamp your paperwork and set it aside. He stamped your paperwork and he grabbed you by the lapels and he pulled you in close into relationship with him. Salvation is a relationship and relationships need to develop in order to become healthy. They need to develop if they're going to become durable. And frankly, they need to develop if you ever want to enjoy your relationship more than you do today. I spend a lot of time investing in premarital counseling with uh, young couples because nobody seems to automatically know how to build a marriage that is healthy and durable and enjoyable. So... A young couple, or I suppose an older couple, comes and asks me to marry them. I say, sure, clear six weeks of your schedule because we need to get together on a regular basis because I'm going to help develop in you the tools that it takes to have a healthy relationship. I've, uh, I've spoken, Laura, and I've spoken together at marriage retreats. We've taught classes, and you guys have too, and you've read books, and you've gone to, to weekends away. We've recommended all those things because whenever people get married, we always tell them, Okay, this is the beginning, not the, not the finish line. From here, you must work to grow and develop your relationship so it becomes healthy and it becomes durable and it becomes enjoyable. And your life with Jesus Christ is no different. Listen, get this. You've got to get this. He will not zap you. Jesus is never going to snap his fingers and miraculously, instantaneously make you a, an altogether different level of mature than you are right now. He did something fabulous when he gave your, your heart real spiritual life. But that, my friend, is the end of the zapping. From here, it takes growth and development in which you and the Spirit of God and the people of God together devote yourselves. Not occasionally, not when the topic is one that interests you, not when you're not tired. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you devote yourself to the development of your relationship with him. A fourth thing, that those first followers, those first leaders filled with God's Holy Spirit decided the church should build itself upon, should organize its life around, is the business of helping in the church, the word is ministry, and when I say ministry, that rings certain bells for other people, and they're, um, they're, they're unpleasant bells for other people. Oh, great. Cliff's now going to recruit for children's ministry. Verse 45, read it. It's all about everybody being all about helping others. That's what verse 45 is about. It's not about socialism versus private ownership. It's not about that. Selling all their... It's not about that. It's about everybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ being all about helping others. All about helping others to the place that if they didn't have anything, any money, any food to give to help another person, they'd sell their house. It's about being all in when it comes to helping others. And as we orient ourselves to these writings in the New Testament, we find this interesting thing that the church needs to quit apologizing for. We, we read from, in, um, in Galatians, uh, boy, what is it, 
Read in Galatians 6.1 that the followers of Jesus Christ are to be so devoted to one another that we serve one another and we place a clear priority on helping those who are part of the household of faith. So Hebrew, or, uh, Galatians 6.1 says, As often as you have opportunity, do good to all men, but especially to those who are part of the household of faith. Why? Are we playing favorites? Yeah, uh-huh. But we play favorites for a reason. Because it's within this sacred fellowship where we are devoted to one another that we can learn what it takes to actually serve when it's no longer convenient and serve when there's people who we don't like and serve when there are people who are annoying. But we still serve because we're devoted to one another. And as the world looks on, believe me, they are attracted to the kind of life where people get along beyond personality. They are attracted to a group of people who genuinely take care of each other. When the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ in America for taking care of one another exceeds the reputation of the church in America for arguing with one another, you're going to have to take a number at the door. I think we're pretty good at helping one another Around here, this church does it very well. But the church of Jesus Christ is devoted to it, but also to helping all those who are in need and within arm's reach of us outside of the church. But helping is one of our things. It's not one of the things that we just kind of like to do. It's one of the reasons we exist. It's how we organize our lives. It's one of the foundation stones. We devote ourselves to serving and helping, to doing ministry in the church and outside. Devotion, listen, devotion doesn't dread being asked. Devotion doesn't view helping as drudgery. If you find that happening in your heart, why don't you have a conversation with the Lord today? He will change your heart. He does that for us. The last thing that uh, the, the early church fathers committed themselves and all Christ followers for all time, the last thing that they committed themselves to as a way of life was to talk in. Good thing I like to talk. But very specifically to talking about Jesus and what he had, has done for them. Verse 47 says that the community of Jesus followers grew in number every single day. And it wasn't by magic. The, the, the folks around him were watching all of this other stuff, all of the worship, all of the community, all of the development, all of the help. But besides putting on an example or a demonstration for the world around them, all of these Christ followers who were devoted to one another and to all of these other things sometimes turned away from the group that they were devoted to and talked about what Jesus Christ has done for them to people who'd never heard of Jesus or had never experienced his love and his life-changing power. And the church of Jesus Christ, all of the believers were devoted to this thing, to talking about Jesus, telling them about him. Listen, if you don't talk, the people in your circle, the folks who are in your circle outside of the community of faith, outside the church, those folks that are your family, those folks you would love, those folks that you work with, your next door neighbors, the folks on your sports teams and in your community clubs, those folks are never going to just figure out the Jesus thing by watching you. 
They'll be attracted to the Jesus thing, but they will never just immediately understand and figure out that he loves them and that he wants to forgive them and he wants to give his Holy Spirit to them. There's no way to just get that. You have to be told by somebody who loves you enough to sound like a crazy man or woman or kid. People in your circle are never going to figure out the Jesus thing unless you devote yourself to telling people about Jesus. They may suspect something of you, but they'll never understand the relationship you have with the Lord and that they can unless you talk. And you won't get around to talking to those people if you aren't devoted to being his witness. See, it takes a moment in which you decide life's going to change and you will now devote yourself to being his witness. After that moment, after that act of devotion, after that commitment, when opportunities come, you will act. There have been plenty of them already in which we didn't, right? The followers of Jesus devoted themselves to worship, to community, to developing themselves, to helping other people, and to talking about Jesus and his power to change us, the gift of his spirit who comes and lives within us. Because they devoted themselves to those things, the next generation got to hear. And because that generation devoted themselves, the next generation got to hear. And it's happened again and again and again for 2,000 years. But the church in America is shrinking today. Not growing slowly, shrinking. Christians are dying in America faster than we are introducing new people into the faith. And there are many, many followers of Jesus Christ who have turned and walked away from him and his church. It's happening, happening at an alarming rate. Ancient Turkey, modern-day Turkey, ancient uh, Asia Minor was once the hotbed of Christianity in this world. Virtually everyone there was a follower of Jesus. Today, less than 1%. For some reason, the disciples there quit devoting themselves worship, to community, to development of their faith, to helping one another and the outside world, to helping and telling other people. And because of it, the church is almost extinct there. That is where we are headed, American church. I'm telling you, it's where we are headed. Unless and until the church of Jesus Christ discovers, once again, the word devoted. Which of these five things are you currently devoted to? If you can answer that question, then you can also answer the question, which of the five are you, are you not devoted to? Listen, Jesus' followers devote themselves to these things. We don't just sample them. You're familiar with sampling. You have a Costco card. 
Well, that looks good. I think I'll have some of that. That was good enough. I'm making a second lap through that part of the store. Ooh, that has broccoli. I don't want that. That's sampling. I'll have a little bit of that. That was enough. That was enough of that. Uh, no, thank you. No, thank you on that. No, that doesn't interest me. That's sampling. Devotion is going and buying a whole box of it. The Costco size. The hundred pack. Foundering on that thing in the privacy of your own home. The followers of Jesus do not sample worship, community development, help, or talk. We buy the whole box and we use it all. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning and bow your heads and close your eyes. I, I would bet that because we worshiped the Lord this morning and we invited him to, to come and speak to us, I'll bet he's been doing it. And if he's been speaking to you about any one of these things, why don't you just, why don't you just talk with him about it? And why don't you surrender all? The song that we sang earlier, right? All my hours are like sand. This life's slipping away. And, and I, can, I can sample Christianity for a lifetime and go home still hungry, deeply unsatisfied. Or I can go having, having gorged myself on the goodness of God. Christianity is the worst religion in the world to dabble in. You will hate it if you just keep trying it a little. But if you will become wholly devoted to him, you will find this is the best possible life. My friend, I want it for you. You can have it if today you will devote yourself to him. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we're devoted to uh, a number of things. I'm devoted to eating. I do that three times, uh, who am I kidding, four or five times a day. I'm devoted to exercising. I do that six times a week. I'm devoted to Laura, so I come home every night. I'm already devoted to a number of things, probably to more things than I realize. Apparently, I'm devoted to my own entertainment. I do that a lot. I must be devoted to Netflix. Lord, here are these things that you spelled out for us in your word, and we'd ask you to, to just call us. Lord, if there's one, two, five of these things to which we are not yet devoted, why don't you just, just say it that plainly to us today? We listen for your voice.